12. So if you have your Bible, open up. I'm going to be reading the text, which is 1 Corinthians 12, um, starting in verse 12, going to 27. So, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hands, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we sit in this um, unique moment. Wedge between what is and what's to come. Maybe between what is and what we want it to be. And there's an inherent tension. Maybe we've even felt that tension over the last 10 or so weeks as we've been investigating what this earth ought to be. And then we look inwards and we look around and we see something a little different. Maybe in us and our desires and motivation, maybe how we see that play out in the world around us. Jesus, you're not afraid of the tension. And yet you need us in that place. And so we ask this morning, um, Jesus, as we open up the text, we seek to hear from you that you would, you speak to us. We trust you're a living and active God. We ask that you speak to us in that tension. Maybe what is currently and what you're calling us into. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hello to everyone who's with us online. Um, online is arguably not the ideal, it's a bit more of a concession than anything, but we are thankful you're able to gather with us. Stoked to have you guys here in the room with us. As we've been talking about the devoted church over the last 10 or so weeks, I was trying to ask just the Holy Spirit and and really search through Scripture and some of our notes, what was left on the table, right? Maybe what went unfinished, 
unsaid. It's a rare opportunity that Steve or I never get when we finish the sermon series to actually circle back around and to ask, like, was there something maybe that was missing that might help us propel into whatever is the next? And I kept thinking about where we were week one when Steve and I were up here teaching together and we were teaching about what it means to be devoted and how actually devoted flies in the face of this really dangerous thing that can seep into the life of the church, which is idealism. Just remember this from week one. And there is an inherent danger in spending so much time talking about the church, and that is idealism. We spent 10 weeks talking about what could be, what might be, what we would like it to be. And if we don't put that stuff into practice, then it stays up here in the idealism. And the problem is, we then are convinced that we're living by that idealism and hold others to the same standard. And it becomes dangerous inside the church when our idealism about what church or community should be trumps what actually is. And to that end, I read this lengthy quote. I'll read just the, the first portion of it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German pastor who did amazing work on what it means to be community. And he said, quote, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. But here's the truth, is we all come to the table with a fair bit of idealism, especially when we talk about the church. We all have the kind of church we want in our head, right? All of us, the plagues, all of us, we all come to the table with some specific vision or picture of what the church ought to be. So what do we do with that is the question. And as both of our churches together have been dreaming about what kind of church Jesus is shaping us to be, as we step out into the next, in a global pandemic and on, Lord willing, hopefully soon, the backside of this pandemic, there's this question that kind of stuck to me. What if the church we want is not the church we need? And it's one of those questions that, like, burrowed into my brain like a tick, and I couldn't let go of. What if the church we want is not the church we need? Whether we like it or not, there are certain presuppositions of the church. Inside you and me, like internally, our inward mind and desires, in the world around us, like maybe what culture expects of or envisions the church to be, and even from the enemy. Each one of these seek to put something on the church that may not supposed to be there. Starting with the culture around us in the world. The world, the culture around us has certain views, desires, and expectations of what the church ought to be. I was reminded of this about a year and a half ago, March of 2020, when there was all this conversation of closing church. You guys remember that? Is it seared into anyone else's brain like in its mind? And of course, as good gospel biblical people, I think, wait a second, only Jesus can close the church. A building closing does not mean a church is closing. But not only was that a hard truth for Christians to grapple with a year and a half ago, 
your building's closed, that means church is closed. And so there's all these presuppositions that the world around us has about what church ought to be. An organization or a business that can be closed. And so attending a well-run church, as if all that is required is the bureaucracy and organizational structure, is your physical presence and your dollars. Bucks and bucks, right? And if the church is only the sum of its administrative capabilities, then all it is is an organization or a business. And although the church does require physical presence and administration is a form of care for people, when those become the primary things, church is simply an organization and a business. And it's what a lot of people assume the church was when COVID hit, an organization that can close for a time or would not somehow function if the doors were closed. The world around us also sees church as a club. So you join a church as if it were a club with exclusive benefits, like Costco. Although the church can and should prioritize those who are inside the family, it is not a club like Costco. It is not a gym membership. The world sees the church as a building. I'm driving to church. How many of you guys told your kids, we're going to church this morning? Love the awful theology we accidentally use when we're not thinking about that kind of language, right? We're going to church as if the church were a building. And the church can't be a church if the building is closed. Although churches can and do meet in places, the place is not the church. And finally, the world sees the church as some event or performance. And so we go to lunch afterwards talking about whether or not we enjoyed church today. As if it were a show to be critiqued or praised after the fact. Although the church can and should bring together the collective gifts to serve one another in a spirit of humility and excellence. But when anyone or all four of these things become the prime thing, we have this weird, distorted picture of the church. And if the church was just a building or a club or a performance or an organization, what would it feel like to be a part of that kind of church? Maybe where you just feel like you're a cog in the system. Or all that's required of you is you show up for an hour on Sunday. What would it feel like to be a part of that church? Now, the enemy... The very real enemy out and about has intentions for the church. Spoiler, they're not good. The enemy has intentions for the church of Jesus. One of them we see in 1 Peter is the enemy has intentions for the church to be ineffective and unfruitful. Would the enemy's goals be accomplished by a highly focused, self-sacrificing church? Or one that looks inwards fights amongst themselves, or just clocks in the bare minimum effort? What do you think would serve the purposes of the enemy more? Peter says there are qualities in Second Peter 1 that actually keep us from being ineffective and fruitful. When we abandon those virtues and qualities, we play right into the enemy's hands. The enemy also intends for the church to be lazy, and complacent. Would the enemy's goals be accomplished by an engaged, participatory community or one that's based on consumption and the status quo? Church goes out goods and services. I will go to the C 
receive those goods and services, and maybe or maybe not, I will pay for those with my tithe or offering. But that's it. You can't ask any more of me. I mean, my work is quite busy. My family is quite busy. All the things. Do you think the enemy's purposes are served by a church that's lazy and complacent? Or a church that's highly engaged and participatory? What would it feel like to be that church that is ineffective, unfruitful, lazy, and complacent? And finally, inside, you and me, we bring bias and intent and desire to the table when we think about church as well. The bias and, and desires of being comfortable. You guys all have to set out your own chairs. That's a little uncomfortable. That's like a highly, like, intentional move on our part this summer. Like, you're going to walk in this room and not even have a chair to sit on. you got to go get it off a rack. It's such a small thing, but it dismantles this idea that the church is here to meet all of your needs. And you are simply here to consume whatever is valuable to you because that's comfortable. So I got my chair set out, my coffee is handed to me, I got a place for my kids, services are delivered, all without asking too much of me. Parents, would it be easier to shuttle your kids off into that back room? Yes! A hundred percent! Easier! We also wish the church to be homogenous. And maybe we get really stoked about racial diversity, but we still want people who dress like us, people who vote like us, people who are woke like us, people who have the same age kids as us, basically people we hang out with normally. We want that inside. We don't want to be hanging out with people that might like ruffle our feathers a little bit. I don't want someone in here who voted for Trump or someone who voted for Biden. I just can't do that. And even though we love the ideals of diversity, we really don't want diversity. We want a homogenous community. Even if we want diversity, we don't actually want it. Because we want the people we would hang out with normally. Not the people we'd be embarrassed to see in public with or might annoy us out and about or might ask too much from us. We also want our needs and our wants met. Are there programs to service my stage of life? Kids, youth, interest group, type of music, type of teaching, type of groups, type of classes. Like, is there the right things to meet my family? So we see so many people moving around so my kids can get met here, so I can have my whatever interest group here, because we want that. And we want a church that is self-affirming. It is never going to get in your face and say what you are doing is wrong. It's never going to tell you when you're in sin. That's never going to confront wrong beliefs or wrong actions or wrong behaviors because we don't want to be offended, challenged, or disrupted. We want to preserve our unchallenged view of the world and myself. We are all our own biggest fans, and we prefer if no one reminded us we're not that awesome. And there's work to do. So we don't want a church that's going to get in your face and say, maybe you don't have it all together. Maybe you need to rethink this part of your life. We love to go unchallenged. What would it feel like to be a part of a church like that? Where you could come in and consume. Everyone was just like you. All your needs and wants were met, and no one ever challenged you. What would it feel like to be? Now, if we're being honest, as I work through some of that list, maybe there is a part of you that goes, I'm going to be nice to be a part of a church like that. Am I a 
things now. That wouldn't happen if we had a kids' classroom. But you know what? The journey of 10 weeks, I love that. I love that. It kills the professionalism and the perfection. And it reminds us that the church is a family, not an event or a performance. But as we read through some of that list, how many of us go, it actually would be really nice if they just had those dang chairs for us me? It would be really nice to have someone in the back watching our kids. And man, I would love someone to hand me a cup of prospect as I'm walking in. We'd love that, right? We'd love to be a part of that church. But play some of that out to the end. And contrast that with what we see in Scripture. The church we want is maybe not the church we actually need. And maybe not the church our city needs, and maybe not actually the kind of church the Bible describes and prescribes. Here's the thing. Jesus said the way forward in life, the way to become more like him, the way to be with him, the way to do the things he did, was to lay down what we want for what we need. It was to give up, to go up. It was to say, there are certain things in life that I would prefer to have dialed in, and maybe I need to lay those down for what's actually best for me. He tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, read, get whatever you want, will lose it, and whoever loses it, for my sake, will find it. What is the church we want is not the church we need. What is the church we want is the thing Jesus is asking you to lay down. How does the Bible describe and prescribe church? Church has tons and tons of metaphors and illustrations for the church. Some of the main ones run counter, directly opposite for how the world sees the church, the club, the building, the performance, a business. Because the church of the Bible tells us that the church, the scripture tells us the church is the family of God. And it describes the richness of living as brothers and sisters in the family of God in contrast to the emptiness of a self-serving club with benefits. It's the difference between joining a gym and being adopted into a family. 
says in First Peter, we will fall from our living stones to be built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God to be yourself. And Paul describes to the Ephesians that we are in a structure being rolled together, grown into the temple of the Lord. And the Bible decides to refer to that he calls our people. And decides to of being a people called out for the purpose of God in contrast to the bondage of being a God in the middle of the chapter 2. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who are the last have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You, as a people, you've been brought near. First Peter chapter two. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse ten. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. There are dozens more metaphors and illustrations that all of them counter to the one we like to put on to the church. Now, if you read some of those texts, what would it feel like to be a part of the church? I bet part of you goes, yeah, but that also seems really hard. That also seems like it's going to ask something of me. That maybe the bar is going to be raised a little bit higher. Which, while similar, brings a bit of a different lens 
it means not only to withstand attack, but to get back up after being knocked down. Like to contend, to recoil. So resilience is what a person or a group needs to emerge from the inevitable challenges, not only intact, but with refined skills, deeper wisdom, and a readiness to endure future suffering. So what resilience is, is what every sports team does in practice and in training. They get beat up in practice so they can be ready for the real thing. Resilient disciples, this is important. Grow more like Jesus, not despite, but because of hardship in life, because of our location and placement in a culture and society that exerts enormous coercive power as they set their hope in Jesus. So, as the church sets their hope on Jesus and Jesus alone, the church comes back stronger as a result of difficulties, not weaker. Embracing this kind of reality of hardship, suffering, not always getting what we want when we want, is, according to Scripture, the pathway to sanctification, holiness, faith development. So the premise in First Peter, the Red New Testament, is actually quite simple. Becoming more like Jesus means being rejected by the world around us. Being rejected by the world around us will lead to suffering in this world. Therefore, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Global pandemic. This is so strange. Laid off from my job. This is so strange. A fight with my spouse. This is so strange. Peter says, you were warned. Life was going to hit the sand every single day. You were warned. Don't be surprised. But, you know what he says? Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, even a little bit of them, that you may also rejoice and be glad in His glory is revealed. Peter knows that how disciples respond to the suffering we incur because we follow Jesus matters and demonstrate something profound to the world. In the same way that Jesus said how we love each other demonstrates something profound to the world around us, Peter goes on to say that how you respond to the inevitable and expected hardships of life communicates something to the world around us. He says in chapter 3, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you guys catch this line of logic? There will be hardships. You as a follower of Jesus will respond differently, and people will ask why on earth you have hope, and you're to be ready with gentleness and respect to share why. Why are you so resilient? The other theme picture we got of First Peter is a faithful disciple. Disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion. This is important and Peter picks up on this because just by waking up in the morning, there are a thousand voices trying to form you into something or someone else. I've already told you this before. If you sleep next to your smartphone, dead giveaway. You're already being formed. Before you process your first thought, you've read 15 emails, the top five 
stores, browse one or more social media feeds, and your day's going well. Maybe you're already feeling anxious, and you just woke up. Maybe you're already feeling worried, and you just rolled over. Maybe you're already feeling stressed out, or your trust in God is being tested because you saw your bank account balance. Or that relative who said something crazy on Facebook, or that email from your boss, and immediately you're anxious and not trusting God for everything in life. You haven't even gotten out of bed yet. There are awesome sources trying to distract you. We have to abolish this idea that somehow our discipleship happens in a vacuum and starts at net zero. The world, the culture around us, the flesh, everything inside of us, and the enemy are all working together cohesively in unity to distract us from the goal of becoming resilient and faithful disciples. We're called to faithfulness. I love that word, and another word for it is devoted. Like continuously committed. Devoted immediately brings to mind the early church's picture of life that we've been studying all summer long in Acts chapter 2. Even when things get hard, the early church was devoted. Even when it would have been easier not to. Even when there might have been something better that came along. And it's that kind of faithfulness I believe the Lord's inviting us into. Pastor and author Jay Kim in his book Analog Church, which is fantastic if you have not seen it or come across it yet. He says discipleship is all about this process of steadily learning how to live the Jesus way. Steady, consistent, unwavering, focused movement in one direction. And the famous pastor and author of the message translation, Eugene Peterson, tapped into this idea with his book describing discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. Often, we want like microwave change in discipleship. When what Jesus is asking of us is like a crock pot or like a smoker. You, you start those ribs the day before. You let them go overnight. They fall off the bone. But often we just want that microwave. We want to zap it in 30 seconds. Man, our oven is busted right now in the house, and I'm so appreciating an oven and a stove because everything we're doing is on like a griddle and a microwave, and it's driving us absolutely crazy right now because the food is not as good. The quality is not as good. The nutrients aren't there. Same thing is true of our discipleship. When we want that instant change in life, it's not going to last. So this vision for growth and faithfulness is over the long haul. It is enduring faithfulness. And the third picture we see in First Peter is resilient, faithful, and vibrant. That our life here on earth is not spent counting down the clock until we die or Jesus returns. But it's living life to the full. Jesus tells us in John 10.10, 10, this is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I am telling you living life to the full. Not just life to come, although yes, but life here and now, to the full. This vibrancy and fullness comes with living the way we were meant to live. Paul picks up on this idea in Galatians 5. When he says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is the entire chapter on 
And so what if we are in trouble? What might it feel like to be a part of the church that is resilient, that is faithful to God, to each other, to Scripture, to our city, and has time to do life when, in a time of life, when there's a lot of lows, and there's a lot of reason to be disappointed and frustrated, like my friends Rod and Linda, who can't be here today, who's not being their friends, and they can't get out. That seems to be like a theme in the last year and a half. What might it look like to be a part of a church that is more vibrant than ever? That is living life to the full as everybody else is chatting around. To have hope and courage when everyone else is lonely and discouraged. What would it feel like to be a part of that kind of church? The church we need. Where we open up the text, see that our life doesn't always match up, and instead of running from the challenge, the scripture confirms our own desires. We need God in that moment. No things are better without challenge. I can't argue you only face the worst if you have a challenge, because you just give into every desire that is in you. So that the gospel comes into the afflicted. We need the scripture to challenge us, to comfort us when we need it, and to afflict us when we are comfortable. We need gospel people around us who are different from us, who see your and my blind spots and stands by us in good times and hard times, who love you enough to be agents of change. People who will stand behind you in your life. Stand next to you at your worst, and stand in front of you in your most vulnerable. We all have friends and family who bailed on the church hardcore when COVID hit. They lost the greatest school in their lives. Aside from the Holy Spirit, the people of God, they lost it. Now, what would it feel like to be a part of a church like that? And here's the truth. Nobody gets the church they want. Sooner or later, you'll be disappointed. And chances are that you've got to be excused. Just be real, you guys. If you're part of either one of our churches, chances are we're going to be the ones to disappoint you. Or we'll be the face of however the church let you down in some way. Your elders will be the face of however the church let you down in some way. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Have you ever found the perfect church and you ruin it by showing up? It's a good thing to remember right now. No one gets the church they want. But here's the truth of the gospel everybody gets the church they need. We may, we may not be like the flashiest, right? We're, someone was even telling us, apologies for watching online, someone was telling us like our live stream has had some like audio issues the last couple of weeks. Sorry, we're just not going to be that church. It's like, got the production dialed in. That's just not the highest of our values. But if you're here in this room, First Corinthians tells us that God has ordained you in the room. Whether you like it or not, we're the church you need. There might be something better out there. There probably is. But it may not be the church we need. We need the church to call us to something greater than ourselves. We need churches that call us to God and take our eyes off ourselves. 
that if the inherent danger in talking about the church all summer is idealism, what is the virtue? What is the scriptural character, way of life that we need to confront that? I believe it's humility. This is where I want to finish out with you guys. And apologies if we've been meandering a little bit. I trust there's been something in here that's actually confronting and speaking to us. We need humility for the journey ahead. And when we follow the example of Jesus and walk in humility, we actually get the church we need. If you would, turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Others, you will get everything you want out of church. 
says, lukewarm. If you don't participate, you will not get the formative experience of the church that helps you change to become the kind of person that can become like Jesus. And if your aim is not to care for others, church will always be about your preference, what the church can do for you, not what you can do for the church. And you learn to judge the church for how it fails to meet your needs. Paul reminds us, you are the body of Christ. You might be a hand, an eye, a foot, or a knee. I'm going to call Paul something less desirable. But you're needed. The body doesn't function properly without you. And you can't function properly as a disciple of Jesus without the rest of the body. You can't. There's no such thing as a Christian apart from the church. Now, there's grace where the ideal lacks. Grace abounds, right? There's grace for all sorts of crazy life things. And you may have, in the past or currently, good reason to be reticent about committing to a church. Jesus is crazy faithful in these moments to grow us, to heal us, to minister to us. But as the rule, you need the church, and the church needs you. Commit, show up, serve others. And if our two churches were characterized by people who walk those things out faithfully, like I truly believe, this city would not be the same. You need the church more than you realize. And the church needs you more than you realize. I'm going to end here reading the same text that Sherry opened us up with. And we're going to respond. So, crew, James and company, come on back up. They're going to lead us through some response. But I just want to end where we started with this vision of the church from Paul. You remember, Corinthians is a pretty messed up church, okay? So, in the midst of that, this is Paul's encouragement and exhortation. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts that we think are comfortable, we bestow the greater honor. Our people treated with greater modesty. Our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so posed the body. Greater honor to the part that lacks it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the member may 
have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, y'all, are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Go and stand on the place in your life.